Welcome to the Carl Reader Show. Hello and welcome to the Carl Reader Show. Now, this episode is an episode that's been recorded live. So that means it might be a video that's been recorded on site or perhaps a keynote presentation that I've delivered. What I want to do is just let you know that the audio quality on this will not be up to speed compared to our studio recordings. However, I believe that the content is well worth your time listening. So enjoy the recording. Let me know what you think of it on social media. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe. So today on the Be Your Own Boss podcast, I'm delighted to be joined by Russell Quirk, best known as founder of eMove. Russell, great to have you on the show. Yeah, hi, good to be here. Excellent. So Russell, please do tell us a little bit about yourself. So yeah, I, I guess best known in the property industry as the founder of eMove, which was a kind of disruptive digital estate agency business. Um, so best known for that. Uh, I have been in property though for some time. So eMove I founded back in 2010, but before that for 10 years, I was the founder or rather the co-founder of a traditional estate agency business with my cousin Anthony, a business called Quirt Deakin. Uh, I've done a number of other things in property. So I've done some other things that are more public sector related. So I was an elected councillor for a while. I was chairman of our local planning committee and also in charge of the assets of the local council, which involved me putting in place a strategy whereby uh, we could start to kind of realise capital and revenue from publicly owned assets. So I I did that quite successfully uh, as well. Um, I've done some other things in the automotive trade so yes I've been an estate agent and a car salesman and I worked in the city for a couple of years so I've kind of had a bit of variety but really my my very short career because I'm very young of course uh, is is predominantly property and I think it's fair to say and I'm sure you were going to bring this up that within the kind of guise of the kind of founder as e-move, of, of eMove founder and CEO of eMove I'm uh, apparently I'm a bit of a Marmite character Okay, so in terms of eMove, was that your first venture into running the estate agency yourself or um, the family business? Did you take on full control of that? No, no. So my grandfather started the original estate agency business back in the 50s. So I kind of, I literally, I was born in the late 60s. I grew up with it. Sure. My father, my grand, uh, my grandfather started it. Then my father and his two brothers continued that business after my grandfather died they then ruined the business I mean literally they they, they closed it down over a, a, a very short period of time after my grandfather died in the 70s so um, I then had the opportunity to buy uh, a single office business in Billericay called Quirk Deakin with, sure. with my cousin we then grew that business throughout uh, the early mid-2000s to be a six office entity and you know that was very successful up until 2008-9 when of course the property downturn hit and uh, sure. you know everyone got spanked frankly so um so eMove was really my second venture i suppose uh, and obviously also in property but but different i mean very very different to the original business because the original business was focused on a very kind of standard branch type approach so we had branch offices in Basildon Stamford La Hope Grays Canby Island etc uh, and, and like everybody thought at the time and everybody thinks now, still, well not everybody, but most people seem to in our industry, believe that the way that estate agency has to be is that you have to have lots of branches, one in each town, and that's how you grow market share. And of course out of that 
the the kind of the the, the contrast to that was my entire philosophy around eMove in so far as me believing that you don't have to have lots and lots of bricks and mortar costs to grab market share in the estate agency industry and and I think you know there's lots of other sectors that have proven that whether it's in particular insurance travel and so on uh, and, and of course look retailers now we've seen the the woes around House of Fraser and Debenhams and Toys R Us and so on whereby the consumer because the consumer wants a better deal is squeezing down revenues but of course the cost of premises particularly rent and business rates only ever go up so there, there's that that shrinking margin which in my view as far as estate agencies also concerned is completely unsustainable and of course look we've just seen the announcement from LSL you know the owner of Reed's Reigns uh, your mover Martian Parsons that they will be closing or hiving off to franchisees at least half of their 350 branch network so look it's everything that I was kind of prophesizing years ago insofar as the demise of the high street it's starting to happen because you know the unit economics just don't stack up anymore sure so if we focus on the start of e-move so um you had your existing business you you noticed the downturn the late um 2008-2009 so the tail end of that decade you clearly saw there's a different way of doing things so what was it that made you um, go health for leather with the e-move approach? Uh, you were one of the first movers. We were. I mean, we were we were third, I think. So the first was House Network. So Mark Reddings and uh, Graham Locke, they started House Network back in 2004-05. When I launched Hatched, I think Adam Day had just started Hatched a year or so before. So we were kind of third, I suppose. But there were only three competitors and none of us were spending money really at the time on technology or, uh, or marketing. My... My view, having been in a state agency for a long time, even back then, was that the industry needed to be better. And I think, as I still think now, despite the kind of demise of e-move, that, that the consumer has become more expectant in terms of value, certainly more expectant in terms of customer service, accessibility, and so on. So what, what I wanted to do was to you know, promote a proposition where service was key and where the... The, the proposition wasn't predicated specifically around having lots of branches, so therefore there would be a saving for us because we wouldn't have 800 branches in the case of Countrywide, but we would have one centralised place where we'd therefore get huge economy of scale, operational uh, efficiency would be promoted. Um, and I, I guess mistakenly, you know, hands up, first kind of um, admission of failure here, Carl, is that I believed that at first, selling someone a listing, so the ability to sell their home via us, Rightmove and Zoopla, could be done at kind of 300 quid, as we were at the time, because our overheads were much lower. Sure. Now, in hindsight, that was, a, that was a huge mistake. And that huge mistake on the basis of two things, really. First of all, unit economics just don't stack up when you add in acquisition costs. So the cost of Google AdWords, our Google AdWords per click, that, that cost increased 20-fold between 2010 and 2018. Wow, okay. Um, Google simply just sucked the life out of sectors. I mean, you're, you're better off, as I've said many times to various people over the last few weeks, actually rather than investing in the online estate agency world or maybe even robo-mortgages, may, maybe the next sector to kind of see this kind of overkill, you're probably better off investing in Google shares. I mean, honestly. Sure. Because Google have this 
amazing ability to work out supply and demand on a minute by minute basis, and they just they just suck suck the money out of the business. Um, so um, so 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 that was the first reason, really, in terms of unit economics. But the the other issue with such a cheap fee is that now, and, and look completely anecdotally, really, and based on a bit of kind of you know psycho geekiness here. Um, Psycho as in psychology, by the way, not that I'm a psycho. <laughs> um, no, but is that low fee is met with suspicion. Yes. So if, if you're only charging a small amount of money, it's a bit like you know walking down the seafront on holiday with your family and seeing cheap breakfasts or cheap this, cheap that. You know, look, n- no one wants a cheap car or a cheap hotel room, really. It, it's and and particularly when you think that a property transaction, of course, it, it's it's not just a six month thing in terms of the relationship that you have with the agent and how long it takes to get a buyer and see the whole thing through but it's it's also very much on the mind of the consumer that you you need to do a good job in terms of getting the best price if you charge too little i think there's a huge element of suspicion from the consumer that they think it's a bit too cheap to be credible so yes pay you know buy cheap pay twice kind of thing and the Actually, to to almost the huge accidental advantage of high street agents, where they're charging much more money, and you would imagine that, therefore, there is room for a cheap alternative. Not only have you got this kind of psychology around cheap fees that works against the online hybrid guys to a degree, I contend, but also the way that the high street agent sells their fee, it's kind of, I'm charging you 1.15%, of a house at £380,000, plus there's VAT. So, you know, who can quickly work out what that cash sum is? Yeah. No, it's... You um, can't, right? So it is a tough calculation to do. And also, um, with the traditional hush estate agents, it's de-risked and it's hidden away in the completion statement once the solicitors have done their stuff. Exactly. So so you, you only realise that 1.1% plus VAT of £380,000 is five grand yeah. uh, once you've exchanged contracts. Then you look at it and you, th- and you think, wow, that was a bit more than I thought. I thought it was kind of three grand-ish. But also you pay from the proceeds of sale. You never actually write out a cheque yes. for that fee. So, of course, the other obstacle for e-move, Purple Bricks, Yopa, How Simple, etc., is that you know, you're, you're asking the seller, yes, you're ask them to pay less and they pay less assuming that you sell the house of course uh, but you also ask them to commit up front so that that then becomes a significant obstacle which is why I think that you know having learned what I've learned through my e-move experience and when you look at how much money has been spent on advertising and marketing the online hybrid estate agency sector so particularly Yopa, Purple Bricks, e-move, How Simple and that's about 150 million pounds over the last four years or so and the online hybrid sector still only has a 7.5% market share, despite 10 years of trying and 150 million quid. So I guess, look, I I had to concede, uh, although some in the online sector certainly still haven't, that there is a problem with cheap fee, fixed fee, um, and the advantages that high street agents have. Sure. So if we talk a little bit about the e-move story... So from startup through to um, unfortunate failure, fairly recently, we're talking about six weeks. Six weeks ago, yeah. Six weeks December ago. December 4th, we went into voluntary administration. Yes. So if we talk about that time, so there was a number of fundraisers along the way. Um, if you can just tell us a little bit about that journey. Yeah, so I, I bootstrapped the business for the first four years. So you know, founded it at the end of 2009 in terms of incorporating eMove Limited. 
Uh, I put my own money into it, no borrowings, no investment, you know, no bank debt uh, for the first three or four years. Uh, I then raised my first round at the end of 2013, which completed at the beginning of 2014. That was James Calm, the sure. dragon celebrity investor, so-called. Um, so that was my my first raise, which was about £500,000. I then raised through venture capital a year later, so uh, January 2015, which was through episode one, Maxfield Capital, that was £2.5 million. And in total, I raised nine rounds of funding, totaling 29 million. The biggest raise was 8 million. Uh, that was at the end of 2017. And it sounds a very grand figure, but when you're spending half a million to a million quid a month on marketing, plus operational burn, plus you're spending two million pounds a year on technology through you know, product employees, engineers, and so on, uh, you, know, you, you can burn through 10 million quid in a year. And I know it sounds preposterous, but you can burn through it really easily. And it's kind of accepted, you know, and, and the, the board and your shareholders, because they've seen this kind of this 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 growth thing with other sectors, whether it's Uber, Deliveroo, Facebook, you know, whatever. Um, it kind of becomes normalized that you just you raise, spend, raise, spend, rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat. Um, so so, yeah, that that was the journey. We, we raised that money I mean, we had 2,000 shareholders in total because, of course, we crowdfunded twice sure, as well. Sure, sure. So uh, lots and lots of shareholder participants um, and a massive distraction. I mean, raising nine rounds of funding in four years. It must have been the day job. It was certainly half of my day. Uh, that was to the detriment of certain things. Um, you know, I, I still think I had my eye on the ball and I, I had a good team around me. I mean, I'd hired... The chief, my chief financial officer was the ex-head of corporate development at Just Eat, so he was part of the IPO team. Sure. He ran the IPO process. Lucy Milne, chief marketing officer, so she was the ex-UK marketing director at Just Eat. Um, Ivan Ramirez, who was the ex-VP of global product at Groupon, so he was my CTO. Um, and for a period of time, my COO, who was the ex-COO of Book a Table, which sold to Michelin for tens of millions of pounds. So I had a brilliant team around me. Um, but when you're hand-to-mouth, as we were, and there's always uncertainty around that and then particularly when the wheels start to wobble as they did kind of mid 2018 um you really don't need distraction you know you you need to you need to keep kind of focused on you know delivering uh, and and certainly ensuring that you're staying true to your strategy and your vision sure so tell me more about the wheels wobbling but when was the point that you heard the rattling from the car so to speak <laughs> right so i mean i've got to admit that the the first kind of squeaky bum moment really was a week before we completed the deal with Tepelo. So we'd spent three or four months with you know negotiating with Tepelo off the back of a term sheet that I had constructed which both sides had signed, so the sure. board of Tepelo and the board of eMove. That merger was a 50-50 merger and it was designed to make us instantly twice as big to give us a competitive advantage and to ensure that we were even more fit to IPO. We had a broker on board, Senkos, that had put in writing that they believed that we could IPO during 2018 for a figure between 120 and 150 million. Um, and of course, when we did the merger with Tepelo, you know, the headlines in the Financial Times were that it was a 100 million pound merger because that was the kind of fully kind of paid up share issuance kind of um, value. Um, but as part of that term sheet, albeit a non-binding term sheet, unfortunately, um, to our cost, we we had agreed certain things around board composition, around you know 
ensuring that we could do the right thing in terms of consolidating one or more of the brands because obviously we didn't want to spend all of our money equally between two brands. We had to pick the best one. Sure. So all of that stuff was agreed, but what was predominant in that term sheet was that we calculated, my CFO and I, that we needed at least eight and a half million pounds to get us to that IPO at the end of 2018. That eight and a half million was the enormity of the first three or four months running three businesses that we kind of thrown together. So uh, obviously not just Emove and Tepelo, but also Urban.co.uk, which sure. is the lettings business that we bought. Uh, it was going to take at least, I mean, if we were super fast, three months to kind of consolidate those costs, which which we did. But then, of course, there was the ongoing operational burn, marketing spend, and so on. So we needed eight and a half million. So I went to both sets of shareholders, the Tepelo shareholders, or the, the one big shareholder, really, Northern Shell, and my shareholders, and said, look, let, let's, let's play safe here. We need 10 million pounds. And very, very quickly, eight million of that was agreed. So five million from Northern Shell and three million from the four biggest and most active shareholders on the EMU side. So Simon Murdoch from Episode 1, Gabby Salem from Wharton Asset Management, Alexander Lazarev from Maxfield Capital, and the Korean Investment Corporation, which is basically Korean sovereign wealth. So our guys, you know, those those latter four said that they'd do three million. Richard Desmond said he'd do five. I had to do another two, but I, I kind of had that in the bag on the basis that, look, when you've raised eight in principle from existing shareholders, doing another two is pretty pretty straightforward. So so all, that, all of that was, we were good to go. Got to a week before completion, and, and things had actually overrun. We were due to complete the merger on April the 30th. As we got into first, second, third week of May, you know, you start thinking, hang on a sec, this feels a bit, bit odd now things are slowing down I don't like it and, and bearing on at this point we no longer had a plan B so my okay. plan B had fallen by the wayside back in March April so you were as a business you were fully committed in, in fact all businesses fully committed down this route yeah and we yes. signed exclusivity so on both sides so they Tepelo couldn't go and do a merge with anybody else we couldn't do a merge with anybody else and so on so so there was there was commitment and we'd also spent about £300,000 on legal fees due diligence and so on and then, lo and behold, I get called into the Northern Shell offices and along comes the chip. Now, I'd always thought that the chip was going to come because I'd dealt with James Kahn in the past, who's a high net worth individual. Sure. Um, I sat drinking with um, you know, Mahmood from Boohoo.com and I'd kind of, you know, you knew the reputation of these big, big, these billionaire types and, and their, their egos, frankly, and, and their devil-may-care attitude to, you know, kind of pushing people around a little bit frankly so I was expecting the chip but what I thought the chip would be would be a realignment of the valuations that they would want the balance to be stacked in their favour so no longer would it be 50-50 but actually what the chip ended up being was them saying uh, we want to do the deal all good you know we, we're really excited about all this and the IPO and so on but by the way that five million pounds that we pledged in the term sheet that we signed yeah we're not doing that anymore ah Oh, really? I said. So, okay, so the deal was off then, I said. Um, and and look, it, it got very, very, uh, as you can imagine, very antagonistic uh, in that next few days. And, and look, ultimately, they, they came up with a very small amount of money as a bit of debt just to kind of okay. patch things over, but nothing like the five million they pledged. We had to pay legal fees on both sides, all the due diligence stuff and the stamp duty. So that the cost with that was half a million. Sure. So this left you, because um, obviously two million of the funding was um, contingent on the entire funding as well. But 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 then, you know, look, we 
we could have said, and people listening to this might say, well, okay, we well, shouldn't have carried on then. Well, if we hadn't carried on, we would have just run out of money. Sure. And actually both businesses would have failed. I'm not that guy. I'm not the guy that can just take my hands off the wheel and say, oh, well, that's that's the end of that nine years particular tenure. Um, I was determined, determined to fight on. And the thing that made me fight on was the fact that I still had supportive shareholders, really good shareholders, particularly people like Simon Murdoch from episode one and uh, Gabby Salem from Wharton. Um, so I thought, well, look, I've raised nine rounds of funding. I will raise another, I'm sure. Uh, hopefully Richard Desmond might actually step up and change his mind uh, sure. and realise in a few weeks' time that he's got to support the business, as he pledged to do. Um, and we also had Senkos, the biggest AIM broker in London, saying, look, we, we believe truly that you're going to raise money for IPO by the end of this year. We're going to put you in front of a load of people. So it, it, we were kind of, we had every faith. So you still had, you still had belief that it could go. Yeah. Um, so this was, um, you know, I, I'm guessing this was wrapped up around summer of 2018. You kind of knew where you were. Kind of, yeah, June. Um, so we did the deal in the end, May the 30th, 2018, we completed. Sure. But I, I did say, you know, my first board meeting at the end of, end of June 2018, I did say to the assembled board members, look, you, you've kind of thrown me out the plane uh, with a parachute that I've got to stitch together before I hit the floor. That, that's sure. how it felt. Um, and actually, we ended up with particularly... I won't mention names, but look, look, particularly a couple of new members of the board were, were quite antagonistic, actually. And, and, and th- I think they, they thought that because they had deep pockets that everybody else around the table believed that they should just continue to come to the rescue. And, of course, okay. I mean, the, the biggest shareholder in Tepelo, Northern Shell, had continually gone to the rescue of Tepelo previously. Sure. Sarah Beanie's kind of, um, uh, when, when, you know, her as the founder. Um and so I think they were just they were just sick of supporting the business, frankly. So anyway, so that was that was a big problem. But we carried on, and we had good reason to want to carry on. Um, but we then, as we got through kind of August, September, after the crowdfunding, because we did another crowdfunding round, it then became clear that Brexit was a problem. Uh, now I'm not blaming Brexit. I'm not doing a Jamie Oliver or a Fly BMI and saying, oh, you know, Brexit was the reason that we failed. Sure. It isn't. But it spooks the markets. Yeah, it, it definitely spooked investors. You know, we we sat in front of Lombard ODA, LNG, MNG, you know, in I think it was September. And three of them had indicated that they wanted to support the IPO that year. That was great. But then that was also the week that Mark Carney, of course, said, if we have a no-deal Brexit, there is a possibility that the property market will crash and values will drop 35%. That that scared the bejesus out of those investors because they thought, well, hang on, why, why do we need to risk investing in a property business if over the next weeks and months, you know, March 29th, post-March 29th, we might see something catastrophic happen in the property market? Now, although the property market in the UK, in my view, is incredibly robust. And, and we've seen that actually over the last two years where, you know, transactions have maintained, property values are slightly higher actually than they were in 2016, despite the shenanigans of Brexit. You can't blame those big public market investors for not wanting to write out a cheque for 10 of million quid at that particular time. So we had that. Then we also had uh, kind of October time, uh, just to add to our woes, Purple Brick's share price halved in four weeks, went from £3.60 to about one pound eighty. Um, and then the Brexit thing really ramped up. And, and basically, we were told in no uncertain terms by brokers and, and funders, look, you're not going to get this away. You're not going to get an IPO done this year. And, and in fact, you know, some of the funds uh, were saying to us, look, you, you've got to be kidding. I mean, sitting there with sure. their arms folded, saying that there is no way that anybody's going to get a property-related IPO away in the midst of this this 
So, so at this point, this would have been when the realisation was starting to kick in, but doors were closing. Yeah, exactly. So I went to the board, you know, and I'm, I'm pretty good at adding options. So I, I'd, I'd often have a plan B, C, D and E. Um, and those plans were, you know, go back to try and revisit a reverse takeover of an aimlisted shell. Uh, that didn't come off. We couldn't find a vehicle. Uh, try to sell the business. Try and do a strategic deal either with an online competitor or a traditional competitor. So we explored all of those things. And in the end, having put lots and lots of feelers out, bringing in another broker, Arden Partners, sure. to do some M&A for us. We got to, uh, I mean, the, the realisation, I think, October time that, the only way out was probably to sell the business. So I was talking to, at one stage, 12 different participants, having having gone out to a whole bunch of uh, competitors and software businesses, international businesses, and so on. Now, some of them obviously were just going to kick the tyres, have a look in our data room and see. But actually, towards the end of eMove, you know, we, we had several several very very serious players who i, I won't mention because i'm still under nda and of course to most of them but we we were talking to several of them about a purchase and and of course as we then got further and further towards the kind of end of our cash runway i think it became very obvious to all of those participants that were looking in the data room that we were going to run out of cash so the kind of squeeze was 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 on uh, we then got to a situation towards the end of november where I mean, we would have taken, I would have taken just half a million pounds for the business. And the reason that that half a million pounds was important was because that was the wage bill for November. So we paid the wages at the end of October, didn't have enough money to pay the wages in November. Sure. So I was desperately trying to get, you know, participant A, B, C, D or E just to pay 500 grand for the business. Just to cover the payroll. Cover the payroll. So okay. at least I could look everybody in the eye and say, right, you've been paid for November. Unfortunately, then what happened, various advice, I suppose, was given by the respective advisors of those businesses. And it was it was deemed that it was much more efficient from a value point of view for them to wait until we went to administration. That way they would avoid the staff liability. Now, that was very, very disappointing for me mm. because that was the main thrust of what I wanted to achieve was them, them being paid. And so, of course, we went into administration. And, and, of course, then all the staff were laid off the next day by the administrator, not, not by me, I hasten to add, but by the administrator. And then, you know, consequently, the, the glue that holds the business together, the people, are not there anymore. And I think that's a critical point, Russell, that I'd like to just cover off. Um, so just to the listeners, you won't know, but we were having a conversation just before this podcast. And we were, we were actually talking about, um, whilst the perception might be that an online estate agency is fully automated and um, runs itself, actually the people are so important. That they they are. When I founded the business, I was determined to take a lot of the a lot of the qualities and the the features and benefits from the previous business I had to make sure that we were very hands on when it came to all of the really important things. So things like offer negotiation, checking mortgage AIPs, and importantly the sales progression. Now that there are participants in the online hybrid estate agency space that definitely don't do those things, although they say they do. And of course, the marketing message says, you know, full service, we do everything and we're proper and so on. But the reality is most online hybrid agents are, are quite scant, really. They, they abdicate sure. that responsibility. I was determined that no matter what we charged, the, the, the centralization of the business and the tech that we built would enable us to, at scale, get to a position where we could do the whole job properly from start to finish, but charge a lower fee. But I guess, as I said earlier, really, the, the fee certainly wasn't enough. And, and the 
online hybrid sector, it only works at scale. So the likes yes. of Purple Bricks, that once they got past 30,000 units and their cost of acquisition started to reduce from £1,000 to just under £400, they found that economy of scale because they'd got traction. Um, uh, although, in my view, Purple Bricks didn't and don't do quite the full job that Emu did. But anyway, that's by the by. So, um, But yeah, I was determined that people were integral and I still think they are. Um, the difference is, I think, as, as is clear having seen 150 million pounds get spent on marketing for online and hybrid agents 10 years down the line 92 and a half percent of the uk public are still choosing a high street agents fee model in terms of paying a percentage at the end and i think yes. the online hybrid space has got to wake up to that the fact that perhaps cheap fee as we've said he's met with suspicion um you know it doesn't work for the business in terms of um, the unit economics and so on so so yeah look there, there's um i think that experiment has been done and i think the consequence is that the public are happy to pay three to four thousand pounds because they believe it's good value and someone else carrying the can of the risk yeah yeah and only getting paid if they sell the percentage fee being very much something that is seen as incentivizing the agent to get the best price even though actually data says that that might not necessarily really be the case but the perception is that so so yeah and and, and of course yeah look, as we said you don't have to write out a check to a high street agent it comes out the proceeds of sale so i, I think yeah look the the, the online hybrid thing is kind of it's it's flawed unless you're purple bricks and you've already built scale and you've built a household name having spent lots and lots of money but only one or two in the space will survive and, and i wager we'll have a bet now if you want that as we sit here middle of february 2019 certainly this year by december 2019 we will actually have seen further online estate agency casualties uh, i won't mention the two in particular i think sure. go but basically they're going to hit the wall because they won't be able to raise the money, they won't be able to sustain their integrity as a business based on how slowly they're growing versus how much money they're raising and spending. Uh, so that that's definitely going to happen. But but also, look, we're, we're seeing trouble in the high street estate mm. agency sector too. Um, so a, a massive shake-up. Uh, and, and look, I, I hope as a consequence of that, we actually end up with a model that's kind of a bit in the middle of the two extremes of kind of, you know, online on one hand and old-fashioned dusty backward looking pure high street agents on the other i think hope we end up with something that is good for the consumer that, that recognizes the way that the consumer is pushing now in terms of wanting choice and value and speed but also works from a margin and a unit economics point of view for the business. absolutely because one of the things that's clear here is that the perception of the hybrid online model is that it has to be low cost and as you've quite rightly alluded to, the cost of acquisition kind of blows that out of the water compared to um, what the customer is expecting, unless you've got enough of a base that actually you can drive those costs down. Uh, now, Russell, if you don't mind me asking, how did this affect you emotionally? Um, I'm not sure, really, because I, I, don't, I don't believe that I kind of felt stressed as such in terms of having symptoms. Um, you know, I wasn't quivering in the corner i didn't kind of cry my eyes out you know on the bus to work every morning but i don't know look, it must have affected me i guess because sure. i had the weight of the world on my shoulders i had 140 staff 2,000 shareholders creditors and above all a family at home that need to be fed 
Um, and that you know, my, my wife, I'm sure, didn't want to go to the school gates the day after we went into administration with a kind of you know head ducked that her husband's business had gone into administration. So there, there was a lot of pressure. But I, I have to say, look, I've got I've had you know a bit of adversity in life uh, in uh, in my earlier years, and I, I guess I've learned to cope and be strong. So. I've I've been pretty resilient, and and I had to be I had to be the leader of the business. I, I guess you had to focus on that fight and focus on how how you can come up with a situation and salvage whatever you can, and and ultimately find an attractive plan A. Yeah, so fighting to the end for sure, um, and and kind of I suppose look, it's a cliche, but going down with the ship, I guess. You know, I had lots of advisors, lots of people I knew in business saying, I mean, way back in August September, you know, particularly as things were a bit disjointed I suppose with the board there was a bit of infighting between them all there was you know there was definitely a bit of dysfunction going on you know a number of people said look just just bail out go and do something else go and get a job somewhere else you don't need it I said no no hang on it's my business I started it I'll finish it kind of thing sure that sounded terrible didn't it I'll finish it I could do it on purpose but you know what I mean um in in a positive way yeah yeah. and 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 so yeah I was um I was determined to kind of stay the course and to fight and I truly believed until really the Sunday before we went into administration, so that would have been December the 2nd, and we went into administration on the 3rd, I truly believe that I could save it because we had enough people interested uh, and I had enough faith in the business, its staff, what we built and so on, that someone would see the value in it. And and I think, you know, starting from that initial one week before the Tepelo completion where it started to wobble, all the way through the set of circumstances where, you know, Mark Carney's announcement, the property market kind of being talked down by the media, uh, investors kind of losing their bottle, really. All of those things, purple brick share price halving, all of those circumstances hitting one after the other, you know, it, 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 it was like it really was running on a treadmill being hit with rocks, you know, wading through treacle type of thing. Sure. Um, but then, yeah, look, I, you talk about plan A. I had to make sure in terms of my emotional state that I ensured that I had a plan B. And that, that plan B was very important because although I might be criticised for having to concede that I might need an alternative, I could not wake up the day after administration and my wife look over at me and say, right, what now? And me say, love, I don't know. I, 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 that's just like I can't do that. And, and the entrepreneur in me almost insisted, I suppose, that I, I have another plan and I have options. But to me, it becomes a question of... I mean, and it's not just... It's not particularly ego or or pride it's bloody survival i mean it really felt like that it's just you know i've got to make sure that you know i've got kids in private school i've got a mortgage you know i've got you know a dog to feed and so on and i I had to ensure that i had a plan okay so what you up to now the plan um so one of the things that i've really enjoyed at emove is pr okay and we'd had a succession of pr agencies up until 2014 We'd fired four or five different agencies just for not being able to deliver. And I'd taken PR in-house in 2014, brought in a guy called James Lockett, who has been, you know, a rock star, really, at eMove in terms of running PR day-to-day. And he and I really kind of ran it in terms of the creative ideas, the research, the writing, and the distribution, building up relationships with journalists, um, and being really, really good at it. And, and, you know, eMove, I mean, 2018, eMove, had about 2,000 pieces of coverage in terms of press mentions, so mentions across consumer, trade, business publications, and and, uh, and so on. And 
you know, quite a bit of radio. So I, I do radio punditry on property and the housing industry and uh, so on. So what I thought I should do is to use all of that knowledge, experience, and those contacts and turn it into a PR agency. So in September, I tested the concept of being able to get coverage for a third party okay. by going to someone I knew and suggesting that I do their PR. I started doing that and it turned very quickly into a success. Um, and so by the time that we got to kind of January and the dust really hadn't even settled on eMove in fairness, I, I kind of had a, a proposition. I had propaganda PR, as it's called. I had the uh, the domain name secured. I had the limited company set up. And that became my plan B and something that I, I could turn to that A, I would enjoy. B, would still be a bit of a challenge because, you know, it's not, not easy at 51 changing careers. Sure. But also would ensure that I could feed the kids, you know. Yes. And, and so that's what I'm doing. So And, and that's the reality of the headlines and um, the social media and, and everything you see. The reality is... You need to pave the way. We do. And, and look, I've never taken any money from eMove. I never sold a share, never took any money off the table. You know, it owed me £180,000. I didn't owe it anything. Sure. Um, and, and so, you know, and I'm not a rich guy, particularly. I, I, I have to make sure that I can I can, I can, can maintain my, my my way. So so Propaganda PR will, will do that, and it's going very, very well. So we've now onboarded eight clients already. You know, we're Fantastic. only six weeks old. Uh, two more in the offing, by the looks of it. Uh, just got to be careful that we, and again, lesson learned here, that we don't do what we did at eMove, which is now to chase really fast and onboard loads of clients and then fall over. So we're going to grow organically. Um, I've seed funded it, but not going to have any investors. Sure. Not going to have a complicated political board. Um, and James Lockett and I, um, as kind of co-founders together, you know, I think it's fair to say that you know we're we're enjoying it and we're seeing significant success from those endeavours. And the other thing is I've been offered a whole bunch of non-exec director positions, um, most of which I've turned down already for various reasons. But there's there's three that I'm now weighing up. And, you know, I will do two or three of them um, that I've been offered. And hopefully that will give me you know, variety, challenge. Uh, again, will pay the bills um, and, and, and allow me yeah to do, to do different stuff and, and actually to help other founders. And hopefully, you know, in one of those two or three businesses, there's an exit or two, hopefully, which will make up for the fact that there isn't going to be an exit in eMove. Sure. Okay, Russell, that, that's fantastic. And thank you so much for your openness and honesty about the eMove journey. Um, what I'd like to do now is to go on to the rapid fire questions. But within these questions, I'd like to um, really get some takeaways that the listeners can um, reflect on and put into action in their own business. And the first one might, might sound a little bit odd, given that we've spoken about failure so far, but... What what was the best decision that you made in the eMove journey? Because clearly, to a point, you were very successful. Um, so yeah, the, the the best decision I made, I guess, was was to make sure that I promoted a proper culture, and 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 that kind of came from literally from day one when it was just me, all the way through kind of you know employee number one, six employees, hundred employees, hundred and forty employees ensuring that that culture was very, very genuine and deep-seated and that there was a mutual respect between me and the people that worked with me, that I was visible and that kind of that they saw me as leading the business and, and really kind of, you know, rolling the sleeves up, getting my hands dirty and so on. That culture then ensured that we had lower staff churn. We found it easy to recruit so people would want to, you know, genuinely did come to us and say, I know someone that works for you, you know, is there any jobs? Can I um, Can I apply? Um, and then, you know, at the end, really, you know, seeing the staff that, you know, when I stood up 
every Friday in the last four weeks of eMove. And I had to kind of deliver the bad news that, you know, things were very tenuous and I had to admit that they might not get paid and so on. That culture bred kind of such a, a passion in the staff that they all still came into work the next day. Wow. And the next day and the next day. And even though I was very honest and said, you you may not get paid. In fact, I think at the end I was saying, you probably won't get paid. We we won't get paid. So that, that culture was very, very important really in terms of, you know, loyalty, support, productivity. Um, and, it, and But it was really tested at the end. It was a kind of trench-like mentality. So I think, you know, people talk a lot about culture. They pay lip service to it. But, but I think most people that you would speak to that were with eMove, particularly that have been with eMove for two, three, four, five years, would they would really attest to the fact that it was kind of almost like a family unit. And as that, again, it sounds corny, but it's, it's true. That's kind of how I ran it. So that, I think that was very, very important. Um, and that was the fabric that really ran through the business. Brilliant. And in terms of advice that you would give yourself, you know, if you could look back at Russell on this journey, what, what would you say to yourself and what would you warn yourself against? So I think that one of the biggest issues is trying to go too fast too quickly. Um, you know, once once you're on the treadmill of raising money, you know, seed inevitably has to lead to series A. Because as soon as you raise money, you're expected to spend it to grow, spend, grow, rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat. So I think, you know, having to raise money relentlessly and be distracted by it it is it can be a fool's errand really particularly if you're in a sector where it's very very competitive and there's lots of other people doing the same so i i would look everyone wants to be a founder don't they you know back in the day people wanted to be train drivers astronauts or whatever now everyone wants to be a founder even though they might not even have an idea. They just want to be a founder. You know, they look at Zuckerberg and Musk and so on. Well, it's glorified, isn't it? It's um, it's romantic. Yeah. It's, it's you know, that's what I want to be. And I've met loads of founders that have no idea what they want to do. No idea, no, I say no idea. They haven't had the idea yet. Um, but they, they think it's glamorous. Um, and actually, being a founder is far from glamorous. I mean, you know, you bootstrap, you sort of, you know, you have no money at first, you know, if at all. Uh, you work long hours. You know, you get relentlessly beaten up by investors that say no, 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 no constantly. Then you have to continually reinvent yourself. And, of course, you might be a very good mortgage broker or estate agent or car salesman that then ends up with this kind of tech business that's raised money and is expected to grow. All of a sudden, you've become a very different animal. It's a very different job, isn't it? Yeah, and can you... Are you that person? And when you look around at the amount of businesses in the property sector, so you look at, I mean, crikey, Hatched, Easy Property, How Simple. Um, you know, if you look at uh, a lot of businesses, Good Lord, you know, they've all shed their founders because the business outgrows the founder. And, and you know, you, you've come across that program, Silicon Valley, that's yes. on whatever it's on, Sky Atlantic, which is hilarious. There's a brilliant quote in that where the VC congratulates the founder and says, congratulations, you've built a business that you're no longer qualified to run. I mean, hilarious, really. But what that's basically saying is you build a business and you build a business to such an extent that you can't run it because you're, you're not qualified to. Um, you know, maybe they don't want an entrepreneur or a domain expert anymore. They want a general manager. Um, I think Good Lord's a very, very good example of that where William Reed's gone in to run it because, you know, it, it, it needed grabbing by the scruff of the neck. Lots of founders lose their jobs uh, and are pushed out. Um, lots of founders kind of have, I think, mental health issues, something we don't talk about enough in terms of the relentless pressure to grow and to raise, uh, the loneliness, you know, the, the the stress and so on. So I guess, look, to answer your question in a long, very long-winded way is 
be careful what you wish for. Be careful that you don't end up on that conveyor belt and you think it's all wonderful and glamorous. And and the first raise, the second raise, you know, I talked to a particular founder in the robo mortgage sector the other day who'd raised a lot of money. Okay. And it, it felt like he thought he'd won. And I had to remind him, I said, you kind of just got to first base. Yeah, and do you know, there's, there's a real um, issue, I believe, in business culture where actually the fundraise is the win. And it definitely feels that some people believe that. Yeah. And, and then I said to him, look, mate, you've now got to perform. You've got a lot of money in the bank, but A, you can't run out uh, and you've got to go fast now. You've got to justify that money. You've now got to execute on your plan. Make sure that for the next year, two, three years that you actually adhere to it. You've got different board members who you probably don't know very well. And that, of course, before they send the money over, because they want to do the deal with you, they're lovely. But those investors, believe me, they can turn on a sixpence. They can mm. change. So I think if you can, if you can almost go a bit old-fashioned, start a business that doesn't have that pressure of fundraising, doesn't have the the board politics, and can maybe grow a bit more organically. I mean, wouldn't that be wonderful if you didn't have to keep raising money every six months just to keep the lights on? Knowing it's almost like walking the plank every day. You know, if I don't raise money next time, we're finished, and that's that's how we move was. And look what happened: we were yeah. finished. Okay, so a couple of fun questions now. First one, if you were to set up a mastermind group and you can have three other people in it, dead or alive, fictional or non-fictional, who would you choose? So as part of an exec team almost? Yeah, a a sounding board team. Who who would you call on? Wow, who would I call on? Um, Who would I call on? Um, To know who I like a lot, Matt Brady, who's the ex-CMO of... Just Eat. Okay. I would love for him to have been uh, the CMO at eMove back in the day, although actually his understudy, Lucy Milne, who was the UK marketing director at Just Eat, ended up being that CMO, sure. but Matt Brady was great. Um, I would want, this is going to be a bit of a curveball, I'd want my chairman to be Margaret Thatcher. Okay. okay. Um, on the basis that although, you know, she's a bit like me, Marmite, you know, to me, she was one of those kind of indefatigable, relentless, uh, individuals that really understood what she was going for and she was determined and um, you know so a, it, a real go-getter and it doesn't surprise me because if I was to choose I would have a politician um, I would have a politician personally for their power to embrace a community and persuade a community yeah there, there's a lot of it that despite you know, regardless of political beliefs and so on there's a lot of power that politicians could bring to the table yeah no no there, there is and they um you know but but to me mrs margaret thatcher was um the kind of the starting gun for entrepreneurialism in the uk yes and, and i know she's heavily criticized but you know whether it's right to buy whether it was big bang you know when she privatized all the big utility companies and so on she she bred a nation of entrepreneurs mm. and then gave them the tools by way of you know accelerating house prices and and so on, gave them the tools to be able to kind of remortgage, take money out of their properties, and kind of make good of themselves. Um, and who? I'd, so I'd have one more. I'd have Einstein as my chief financial officer. Fantastic, fantastic. Um, so the next question: um, in terms of purchases that you've made recently, what purchase for around fifty quid or so has made the biggest impact to your quality of life? Yeah, it's going to seem a bit pathetic, really, but this little speaker thing that I've bought, which I really, really do like. So I, I spend a lot of time, you know, particularly in my home office now, because obviously I'm there 
uh, more often than not. Um, taking conference calls, you know, trying to be busy, typing away at the same time. I, I came across this li- this little speaker thing, which is um, let me just check what it's called. Actually, it's called the the Jabra Speak J A B R A Speak five ten. Okay, which is a really really high quality speaker that sits on your desk, and whether you're on a Skype call, Google Hangout. Uh, a Zoom call, or indeed just using your mobile, um, it gives really, really crystal clear uh, transmission kind of you know input and output, so that you can kind of get off, get on doing what you're doing, but also have uh, you know a, a really clear uh, call with somebody. So that that I found for not a lot of money has really has really helped productivity actually. Brilliant. Okay, and one last question, and this is actually going to be focused on the PR industry, not the estate agency industry. Um, what one thing in your industry would you change? In the PR industry, um, the biggest problem with PR agencies is the way they blatantly over-promise and under-deliver. Sure. Everybody that I've come across has been very suspicious of PR agencies on the basis that they say that they're going to do all sorts of wonderful things, and generally then they don't. And, and they're actually, when you look at the output of a PR agency in terms of client output not necessarily the output from the PR agency because they'll say yeah well we've done loads of press releases loads of research we've worked really hard this month but I'm afraid the client will gauge success based on the coverage they get sure so I I guess you know one of the things we do is we have a way of uh, the client paying which is based on results uh, whereby they pay a certain amount of money for every piece of coverage so I, I think you know, we talked about paying by results as far as estate agents yes. are concerned. I think the PR sector would do themselves a great service by perhaps putting their money where their mouth is. But on the other hand, to be honest, Carl, I don't want them to, do I? Because no, my no. one of my USPs now is the way that we can charge people and um, and and kind of yeah live live on that success. So, Russell, I do apologise, uh, but I have got one more question, and and you are probably the only person qualified to answer it. <laughs> So you said car salesman, you said estate agent, and you said people are sceptical of PR agents. Um, who ranks top of a tree out of three of them? What, in moral terms? Yes. <laughs> well, I think PR people have got a bit more credibility. That, that's actually seen as a profession, isn't it? Yes. Um, I think estate agents are lower than car salesmen, aren't they? Um, although, actually, back in my day, so I was selling Porsche and Ferrari back in the 90s. A, a real fun time, actually. Mm. And, and in a time where your basic salary was really low, your commission potentially was really high, and you could you, you could earn good money working really hard. One of the biggest problems, I think, with the automotive industry now, as I understand it, is that all the old salespeople, the, the good old-fashioned salesmen have all gone. They're all kind of order takers now. The, sure. The big groups like Pendragon and Jardine and so on have you know decided to pay big basics and smaller commissions. And... I have to say, most of the experiences I've had over the last few years in trying to go and buy a car has been met with apathy and inefficiency, and I think that's mm. a real shame. So so I think, yeah, in, in terms of pecking order, I guess, look, car salesmen just about uh, probably top the tree in terms of, you know, PR, I guess, top the tree in terms of credibility, then car salesmen. Then I'm afraid, rightly or wrongly, the public perception is that estate agents are kind of down there with, um, yeah, traffic wardens, journalists, and, uh, and politicians, aren't they? <laughs> Russell, don't worry, we love you. So, Russell, how can we find out more about you? So, Twitter is uh, something I'm pretty regularly on. That's at Russell Quirk. Uh, the Propaganda website is propaganda.co. And, of course, on LinkedIn. So, just uh, search Russell Quirk at LinkedIn and um, you'll see me there kind of extolling my uh, apparently somewhat and occasional controversy, uh, controversial uh, viewpoints and opinions. Fantastic. Russell, thank you very much. Pleasure.
Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to The Carl Reader Show. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and tell your friends. This podcast was brought to you by our sponsor, D&T Advisory, helping you unlock the magic in your business by adding value, not numbers. Find out more at www.team-dt.com. QuickBooks, helping UK small businesses stay on top of their finances.